Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us this Wednesday. Let's get started with five things to know. It is Wednesday, April the 26th, 2023. House Republican leaders pushing for a vote on their debt ceiling plan as early as today, but it's just not clear if they've got the votes, right? President Biden now says he's going to veto the bill. Yeah, sure sounds like they don't. Also today, the Taliban has now killed the suspected ISIS mastermind who was behind that 2021 suicide bombing at the Kabul airport. Of course, that is one that killed 13 U.S. service members. This is according to the White House. The Pentagon says the U.S. was not involved in that operation. Also, the woman who says former President Trump raped her could take the stand today in her battery and defamation lawsuit against him. Court is going to get underway in the E. Jean Carroll case at 10 a.m. Eastern. Also happening today, Asa Hutchinson formally launching his presidential campaign. The former Republican governor of Arkansas is now one of five candidates running so far in the primary. And Kim Kardashian tells CNN she'd be willing to step away from the cameras and become an attorney full-time. Our wide-ranging conversation coming up. CNN This Morning starts right now. I like how you're just casually dropping the Kim Kardashian interview. So I was going to start with McCarthy, but let's go to Kim K instead. Someone I wanted to interview for years and years and years, not about Hollywood. I don't, I'm not a big Hollywood person, not my thing. But justice, uh, social justice reform and criminal justice reform is, and I got to do that yesterday. And I cannot wait for everyone to hear what she had to say, what she wants to do, and why she wants to meet with President Biden yeah, ahead. Amazing. Meantime, to McCarthy, urgency for the House Speaker, who is struggling to unite fellow Republicans on his debt limit plan as the U.S. economy heads towards a real cliff. Here's why the fear is more intense. Remember tax day last week? It was weaker than expected in terms of what everyone paid into the government. That could move the potential default date up to early June. So it is crucial. It's crucial ahead for McCarthy as he scrambles to get enough votes for his bill. He can only lose four Republicans or his plan is doomed. House GOP leaders were planning to vote today, but McCarthy is now saying that vote will be postponed and that'll happen sometime this week. You have to change the bill to get 218 votes. I'll let you know. Are you, are you, do you have 218 votes on this? You're the first person I'm going to call. Good. So McCarthy's going to call Mono. apparently. He's trying to force President Biden to negotiate on really significant spending cuts tied to the debt ceiling, and those cuts would gut the Biden agenda. The White House is refusing to budge, vowing to veto that bill if somehow it were to pass. Our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox, is live on Capitol Hill. It was um, Matt Gates last night to uh, our, our Michael Smirconish who said he thinks um, McCarthy's short by eight votes. Is that what you're hearing? 
Well, there was some major drama last night, Poppy. In the House Rules Committee, they recessed around 11 p.m. last night. They had these last-minute negotiations, and after days of leadership arguing this bill would not be changed. Negotiations are closed, they said repeatedly. They decided to make some changes, and that is because they knew that they did not have the votes as the bill was currently structured. So around 1.45 a.m. this morning, the House Rules Committee moved forward with what is known as a manager's amendment, basically leadership's changes to this bill. And those changes included a few important factors. One of them, they are moving up work requirements and when those work requirements would go into effect. That is an effort to shore up support from some conservatives who were on the fence, people like Matt Gates. The other change that they made was they decided they are not going to repeal some of the biofuel credits that they were planning to get rid of in this legislation. That is because they had key holdouts from Midwestern Republicans who were concerned about those changes, Poppy. So we are going to get a lot more information around 9 a.m. this morning when House leaders convene with their members to try to get a sense of whether or not they now have the votes that they need. They could vote on this as early as today, despite the fact that there's been a lot of consternation about whether they had the votes or not. Uh, And to be clear, I said McCarthy uh, said he would postpone it. Clearly, he's not saying that. So maybe it could happen as early as today. That might solve the Matt Gates issue. I'm not sure if it solves people like Nancy Mace, for example, who have sort of broader issues with this. Well, what happens if McCarthy doesn't get the votes he needs? Then what? Well, I mean, that is the big question, because the argument that leadership is going to make in this meeting today, the argument they have been making for the last several days to members who were on the fence is this may not be perfect. This may not be all that you want included, but this is the only chance we have to prove to the White House that, look, Republicans are united. We have a plan. What's your plan going to be? Let's sit down at the negotiating table and figure this out. If McCarthy can't pull his membership together, it puts into question his own leadership. It also puts into question whether or not he's going to have a chance at all to negotiate with the president who wants a clean debt ceiling increase. Poppy? Okay. Lauren Fox, thanks very much for that update. All right. In just a few hours from now, the civil battery and defamation trial that is being brought against former President Trump by the columnist E. Jean Carroll is going to resume here in New York. Carroll is expected to testify along with an employee from Bergdorf Goodman, according to a source telling CNN. Carroll alleges that Trump assaulted her in a dressing room at that department store back in the mid-1990s. Those are allegations Trump has denied repeatedly. I proceeded into the dressing room. The minute he closed that door, I was banged up against the wall. He slammed you against the wall. Yeah, I hit my head really hard. She has been speaking out against this since 2019. But this week on Tuesday, a jury of nine people was impaneled for the case. It's six men, three women. According to the judge, jurors are going to be transported to the courthouse in marshal-supervised vehicles that are actually going to go through a garage to avoid the crowd that often forms outside the courthouse. In opening statements yesterday, Carol's attorney revealed that two other alleged victims of Trump's are also going to testify to show a pattern, according to the attorney, of his alleged violent behavior. Sean Crowley said three women, one clear pattern. Start with a friendly encounter in a semi-public place. All of a sudden, pounce, kiss, grab, grope, don't wait. When you are a star, you can do anything you want. The attorney continued, and when they speak up about what happened, attack. Humiliate them, call them liars, call them too ugly to assault. Carol's attorney speaking directly to Trump's words, of course, that were heard in that infamous Access Hollywood tape, which is also going to be shown to the jury, we are told. Trump's attorney, Joe Jacopina, says in opening statements that Carol and the two other women are, quote, conspiring to hurt Trump politically. 
A manhunt is underway this morning uh, for four inmates who escaped from a jail in Mississippi. One of them is now accused of killing a man and stealing his car while on the run. The sheriff in Hines County, that includes Jackson, say officials believe that the men got out through a pair of breaches on Saturday, one, uh, in, one in their living quarters, another in the roof. Our Amra Walker joins us now. Obviously, scary manhunt for four of them. What do we know about this search? Yeah, Poppy, as, you, as you'd imagine, it's uh, quite alarming, especially for the residents who live in this rural area near the Raymond Detention Center in Jackson, Mississippi. So what we have here are four inmates who have not been seen since Saturday evening. Authorities say that they escaped through a roof in their cell, and now you have a murder and two stolen vehicles that are being connected to the escapees. Here's what we know so far, according to Jackson Police and the Hines County Sheriff's Department. So they were able to piece together a timeline by looking at surveillance video from inside the Raymond Detention Center. They were able to determine that these escapees left uh, through the ceiling and roof of their cell at 8.30 in the evening Saturday. They climbed up there. They apparently camped out on the roof and left at different times. And it wasn't until about 1230, about four hours later, when authorities noticed that they were missing during a routine headcount. Now, there was um, we do believe uh, that they that three of those suspects are still in Mississippi. Another believed to have traveled to Texas. I do want to show you pictures of these four escapees that police are searching for. They do believe they are armed and dangerous. The first being 22-year-old Dylan Arrington. He has been charged with auto theft, and he's also a convicted felon in possession for possession of a firearm. 51-year-old Jerry Rains, charged with auto theft and business burglary. Officials say that he actually has a history of escaping that very that Raymond Detention Center. 24-year-old Casey Grayson, uh, charged with grand larceny and the sale of controlled substance. And 22-year-old Casey Harrison, charged with receiving stolen property. I do want to mention that the Hines County Sheriff Poppy uh, did mention during a news conference that the detention center has been dealing with chronic shorting, uh, short staff shortages, mm. uh, that they are short currently 50 detention officers. And they, he said, look, this is not an excuse. This is just to show you yeah. the challenges that they have been dealing with, Poppy. It might point to if there was a lack of, you know, enough cell checks, et cetera. Um, Amra, thank you very much. Also new overnight on the international front, we are getting our first look at the jailed Kremlin critic, Alexei Navalny, for the first time in months. He appeared via video link earlier today. You can see him here. Navalny says that he has been told he faces a new terrorism case. His daughter says that prison officials are starving her father, that he has lost more than 17 pounds in just two weeks. One of my dad's attorneys has confirmed that according to the new rules that they specifically drew up for my dad, he is now illegally limited to the amount of food that he can purchase in the canteen. The Russian government is stripping everyone who's a political prisoner in Russia right now of some such basic needs as eating food. CNN's Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, uh, obviously you could tell that Navalny looked thinner. You know, he's been in solitary confinement. We're now told that's being extended. What do we know about these new allegations of this new terrorism case that he says is being brought against him? 
Yeah, Caitlin, it's complicated, and in fact, his daughter has suggested perhaps intentionally so, but it all adds up to a, a worsening situation and even bleaker outlook for Russia's most prominent opposition figure. What happened this morning, and the hearing is now over, uh, was that the judge ruled in favor of pros prosecutors who asked to limit the amount of time that Navalny and his team have to review what they say is 196 volumes of documents in an extremism case against him. He will now have only between now and May the 5th, so about 10 days, to review that. Very serious charges that his team say would carry a maximum sentence of 30 years, which would, of course, come on top of the 11 and a half years uh, that he's currently serving. Separately from that, Navalny has said that he has been told he faces uh, another terrorism case, he says, related to something he allegedly did in prison. All of this taking place uh, in a closed hearing, something that his team has criticized. And all as we see increasing concerns uh, around his health, his restrictions and food, uh, the weight loss. And as you say, hearing this morning, uh, that after just finishing 15 days in solitary confinement, he has now been sent back for what his spokesperson says will be his 14th stint. So legal pressure, health pressure, all adding up, as I say, to a much bleaker outlook for Navalny. Yeah, I mean, 196 volumes and only days to review it. I mean, it just seems yeah. typical to the treatment he has been getting. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that very important update. Also this, the White House says the Taliban has killed the ISIS mastermind behind the suicide bombing. You'll remember they killed 13 U.S. troops during the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We'll take you live to the Pentagon with details. Plus, former President Trump is now suggesting he may skip Republican primary debates. The, D the Democrats, we should note, have not scheduled any as President Biden is making his run official. Will they even happen? We'll see. debate over debates for Democrats and Republicans as primary season kicks off. Former President Trump suggesting he may skip out on Republican debates because of his early lead in the polls, while challengers to President Biden have said they want to duke it out on the debate stage despite no scheduled debates from the DNC. Let's bring in political politics reporter Sally Goldenberg. Good morning. Good morning. I feel like we're back in 2016. <laughs> debate over just repeats debates. itself. Or 2020, it just history does repeat itself. What do you, is Trump bluffing? Yeah, I mean, we have to see. He has done this in the past and then debated. I think what he's doing is what he's done a number of times so far in his campaign, starting from a position of sowing chaos into the process and making himself look like a victim of attacks. You know, it sets the bar pretty low and it tells his base, his MAGA base and others, you know, these people are mistreating me. I can't get a fair shake. And that's been his M.O. throughout. I think it's hard to imagine he would want to pass up the opportunity to be on the debate stage with his primary opponents. His chief opponent, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, isn't tested on a national stage like Trump. I love how you say his chief opponent, who is not even officially. Not even officially in yet, exactly. But, you know, expected yes. to be his chief opponent, yes. isn't tested on the national stage. And Trump is. So, you know, I suspect he will want that opportunity, but he's certainly setting expectations. Yeah, it's a massive television audience. You know, he, and he threatened to skip debates before. I think he skipped one in 2016. In Iowa. He, he threatened this in 2020 as well, but he actually ultimately showed up on the debate stage. His argument, it seemed to be about who is hosting the debates. He's a very critical 
um, of Fox News at times. He's critical of the fact that one's being held at the Reagan Library, mm-hmm. former publisher of the Washington Post, runs that. Th- that seemed to be his complaint as well as who's facilitating the debates, not just who's going to be on stage with him. Yes, exactly. Because I think he he wants to always signal to people, particularly his own political base, that nobody really gives him fair treatment. And by doing that, by say, you know, he's been saying this, as you said, it's 2016 all over again. The press is out to get me. The, you know, the Democrats are out to get me. The mainstream Republicans are out to get me. And, you know, it sort of it sets that expectation, whether people believe him or not. It sort of he says it enough times. It creates a perception and he benefits from that. We talk about Republican stances and public statements on abortion because they've been and I mean candidates Mm -hmm. all over the place. Is it a states' rights thing, as the Supreme Court said, overturning Roe versus Wade? Is it a federal ban thing at a certain number of weeks? Caitlin's interview, I think, with Asa Hutchinson pointed a lot of this out yesterday. What do you think? I think what we're seeing is that there isn't, you know, Republicans are just not in a strong position on this issue. You know, after the overturning of Roe, elections have shown that popular opinion in America is not on the side of extreme abortion bans. And, you know, you saw in the Wisconsin judge election uh, this this month or a few weeks ago, an 11 point difference in a swing state. And that was a prominent issue in that election. So I think you're seeing Republican candidates just, frankly, as you said, scrambling to figure out how to to reclaim this issue as one that works for them in both a primary and in a general election. Yesterday, Nikki Haley gave a speech electively but and, and sort of presented it ahead of time as though she would be coming to some consensus or some clarity on the issue. And she really didn't. And, you know, I think you're seeing that over and over with these candidates. Yeah, she called for a national consensus, but it the specifics of what that consensus would look like. I mean, that's actually the big, it's a bigger problem that people can just, you know, nail down what exactly it is voters want. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Well, it seems like this will be an issue for Republicans to come. Maybe we'll see it on the debate stage play out. I'm sure. Um, Sally, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. In just a couple of hours from now, Brazil's former president is actually set to testify on his alleged role in the violent riots that happened after he lost his reelection. And before we had to break, the world is mourning the loss of activists and artists and king of Calypso, Harry Belafonte. He died at the age of 96 of congestive heart failure, a huge supporter of the civil rights movement, and he gained groundbreaking success for his 1956 hit, the Banana Boat Song, Deo. The song you're hearing right now. We remember him. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The White House now says that the head of the ISIS cell that was behind the leader behind that deadly 2021 suicide bombing at the Kabul International Airport has now been killed by the Taliban. The horrific attack was carried out in the final days of that chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. It killed 13 American service members and also more than 170 Afghans. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon with more. Natasha, this is coming from the White House, from the Pentagon. What do we know about this? Was the U.S. involved in this at all based on what we know so far? 
Yeah, Caitlin, so we got two statements last night, one from the White House National Security Council and one late at night from the Pentagon. The National Security Council not telling us much, and neither really did the Pentagon, but saying that they do believe that the ISIS-K planner, uh, who was responsible for basically masterminding this uh, attack on Abbey Gate back in August of 2021, was killed by the Taliban in early April. Now, the Defense Department in their statement late last night said that the U.S. was not involved in this operation. This was purely a Taliban operation. Operation. However, they feel confident that the intelligence that they have, that this senior ISIS-K leader was killed, uh, is accurate. But they are not revealing the actual name of this uh, alleged ISIS leader who, who apparently carried out, or planned, I should say, this uh, massive attack on Abbey Gate in the waning days of the American evacuation uh, from Kabul there. Uh, so our information really is kind of limited in that respect. But look, the fact that the U.S. is announcing here that the Taliban carried out this operation rather than the United States to kill a senior ISIS leader really speaks to the limits of the U.S. ability to carry out counterterrorism operations uh, in Afghanistan post-withdrawal. And actually, the commander of Central Command, Eric Carrilla, he spoke to this on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago, saying that the U.S.'s uh, ability really to see the, the, the broad contours of a growing threat of a terrorist organization, especially like ISIS, is very limited in the wake of the withdrawal, Caitlin. Yeah. And I know, given, you know, we've been looking at the aftermath of the withdrawal, it's certainly been a point of scrutiny Republicans on Capitol Hill who are praising the fact that this this leader has been killed, but they're still saying that doesn't take away from how the withdrawal went down with the fact that these 13 U.S. service members were killed in this attack. Yeah, Caitlin, so Republican Representative uh, Michael McCall, he is saying that, of course, uh, he is happy that another uh, terrorist was taken off of the battlefield, and that is a good thing. But at the same time, he does not want to see the Biden administration take a victory lap about this. He said in a statement last night that he still plans to hold the administration accountable in committee hearings, for example, that they are doing to investigate the U.S. withdrawal, and that he believes that this is uh, not enough, really, to hold the, not enough to hold the administration accountable for the very chaotic withdrawal that left those 13 U.S. service members dead. And we should note that we spoke to a father of a U.S. service member uh, who was killed in that attack. And he also said that while he is happy that this uh, terrorist has been uh, killed, according to the U.S. government, he also believes that more needs to be done to hold individuals in the U.S. government and the Biden administration accountable for what happened to his son and, of course, others, Caitlin. Yeah, certainly not a victory lap for anyone. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. An update on a story we brought you on Monday. An American woman and her baby who were stuck in Sudan in the middle of all of this fighting, they have escaped. English teacher Trillian Clifford and her 18-month-old daughter Alma were sheltering in place in Sudan earlier this week. They hid under a coffee table whenever they heard gunshots or explosions. Her sister-in-law was on with us and told us they were just following orders. We're in a very awful holding pattern because Trillian's been told by both the U.S. Embassy and the international school that she works for that she has to shelter in place and that she should not accept any offers for private evacuation. So she is just stuck waiting right now in fear. Well, that fear is now over. We are happy to report that she has told us that her sister-in-law and the school that her sister-in-law works for helped them and other foreign nationals cross the border out of Sudan. She says that they're not disclosing exactly where they are now for safety reasons, but we are told that Trillian and her baby Alma should be back in the U.S. in just a couple of days. That's so great to hear. Also, later this morning, the former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, is set to testify at the federal police headquarters in the capital of Brasilia. The Supreme Court has ordered him to answer questions as part of their investigation into the January 8th riots. 
course, you remember these striking images from that day. That is the day that thousands of Bolsonaro's supporters attacked and trashed government buildings after he lost the election. Bolsonaro never explicitly actually conceded, and he fled to Florida just before the riots for what they claimed were health reasons. Officials say he had been sowing doubt about the voting systems and wanting to know whether or not he encouraged his supporters to create the chaos that you saw there. This morning, we're hearing from a former producer at Fox News who worked closely with ousted anchor Tucker Carlson, what she's saying about the dozens of audio tapes she has from her time at the network. Yeah, 90 tapes. Also, you're waking up maybe from a pretty good sleep this morning thanks to melatonin, but there is actually new research about potentially dangerous and dosages that are unreported. We'll bring you the latest. New this morning, the Wall Street Journal owned by the same parent company as Fox News, is reporting Tucker Carlson's disregard for management and his vulgar messages about colleagues were a big factor in Fox News' decision to part ways with its primetime host. The Rupert Murdoch-owned paper reports that in that Dominion defamation lawsuit, Fox's lawyers thought they were telling Carlson good news. They persuaded the court to redact from a legal filing the time that Carlson called a senior Fox News executive the C-word. But apparently Carlson wasn't impressed. He told his colleagues he wanted the world to know what he'd said about that executive in a private message. And this report comes on the heels of an interview given by Abby Grossberg, a former Fox producer who's suing Fox now over what she described in the lawsuit as a sexist, hostile work environment at Tucker Carlson's show. Tucker and his executive producer, Justin Wells, who was also fired, really were responsible for breaking me and making my life a living hell. So there is a feeling of justice, but it's only partial, immediately. I show up first day of work, and I know that this is a popular one. It's been widely publicized. There are literally pictures like this big of Nancy Pelosi in a bathing suit in Europe, plastered all over. Within a few days, I was called into Justin Wells' office with Alex McCaskill, who was a senior producer as well, and asked if Maria was having an affair with Kevin McCarthy. It was just, I, I was shocked. I couldn't even believe it. I was floored. Wow. She says she has 90 tapes. CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher joins us now, also media reporter for Axios. It was a very long, long, in-depth interview. What is the biggest takeaway? Biggest takeaway is that she has 90 tapes, which is a huge deal because obviously the legal fallout from her lawsuits, the two complaints she filed in March, is still ongoing. So the more evidence out there, that's a big deal. I think th- she detailed about the culture of misogyny at the show matters a lot because part of what she is alleging in these filings is that it was, you know, a culture of misogyny, et cetera, that was rampant throughout the show and the network. And then I think the biggest thing, too, was that she said that Tucker was hell-bent on finding some sort of a link between what happened in January 6th and the FBI being involved, a conspiracy known as a false flag. And, you know, she had alleged that he could potentially be trying to find this link ahead of the trial to sort of absolve Fox from any responsibility. So those are the biggest takeaways to me. But again, as she says she has 90 tapes, there's a lot more that could be coming. I have a thought on the... the connection, conspiracy thing. But on the tapes, what she seemed to be saying was what reporters often do is use Otter, that app. I mean, it's not just that one, but others to record conversations or having maybe pre-interviews or something like that. That's what she seemed to be saying she had those tapes for. Not that she was necessarily surreptitiously recording people, right? That's my understanding of it, too. And uh, another thing I wanted to just flag is part of what she says she has are sort of like pre-interviews that what the Fox News hosts were having with 
you know, Trump allies. So, for example, lawmakers, lawmakers or people like Sidney Powell, lawyers, et cetera. And that matters because in those interviews, apparently, these Trump allies had conceded that they don't have exact proof that Dominion voting systems rigged the election. So that's why that's a very explosive thing to have, because it essentially proves that Fox News knew that the people who were coming on its air were going to be promoting something that wasn't it proven to be true about Dominion. And she said that she's been subpoenaed in the Smartmatic lawsuit, which is the other tech company that is suing Fox. Abby Grossberg said she's been subpoenaed in that. That's a big deal, Caitlin, because if you think about Dominion, they settled for $787 million, but they were trying to get $1.6 billion in damages. Smartmatic is alleging $2.7 billion in damages. And so Fox actually now has to pivot and prepare for a potentially even bigger defamation suit that's going to go down. And so her coming out now and saying that there's even more proof out there, I'm sure Smartmatic's lawyers are looking at this and thinking that this is a huge win for them. Yeah, great point. Uh, by the way, if anyone thought this was just sort of a U.S. issue, think again, Sergey Lavrov uh, uh, here, uh, given Russia's position this month on the Security Council. Listen to what he said about this. Perhaps it would be useful to consider how things are with freedom of speech in the United States. I've heard that Tucker Carlson has left Fox News. It's curious news. What is this related to? One can only guess. But clearly, the wealth of views in the American information space has suffered as a result. That's the Russian foreign minister talking about this in the uh, in an argument, sort of an argument about free speech. I mean, that makes me more proud to be an American than anything I've ever heard. I mean, Russia has passed a fake news law that doesn't even allow reporters to call its war invasion in Ukraine, a war. And so when that's his perspective, that we have a free speech problem because Tucker Carlson is getting fired for, you know, essentially being a part of a defamation suit for airing falsehoods. I listen to those types of comments and I think, gosh, I'm so lucky to be a reporter here in the United States because to me, that's crazy. It's also classic Russia to try to spend their problems and put them on the U.S. Of course. Um, All right, Sarah Fisher, got a lot to track. So thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right. Also this morning, as we just mentioned before break, you could be consuming dangerous amounts of melatonin and CBD for sleep. There is a new study that found some of those melatonin gummies that are so popular actually contain way more of the hormone than they advertise. Researchers say that they found one product even contained 347 percent more melatonin than it was listed on the label. Our CNN senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, is tracking all of this and joins us now. Elizabeth, what exactly you know, did they find if people have these gummies? Should they be concerned about taking them before they go to bed? You know, I think people need to know that the supplement industry, it's its regulated, but not the same way that drugs are. And study after study has found that the amounts that are in supplements are not always what they say they are. So let's take a look at these melatonin gummies. So when this group um, did their research, it's published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they tested 25 brands. The levels of melatonin range from 74% to 347%, so way more of what was in the label. And only three of them actually contained within 10% of what they were labeled. One of them actually had no melatonin at all. Now, you know, sometimes uh, children take these uh, gummies and the side effects of melatonin use in children are, you know, can be pretty serious. They get drowsy, they get headaches, they get agitated, they wet the bed. So, uh, you know, you want to be really clear, really careful. Just because something comes in a bottle and it's labeled doesn't mean that you're getting exactly what you think you're getting. Then how can you know I mean, what would you do if this was your kids or you? Do you just stop taking them? Right. 
Well, what I would do, first of all, you want to seriously think about whether or not you want to take them, and then you want to talk to your pediatrician. Here's some advice from Memorial Sloan Kettering, the hospital in New York. What they say is for all supplements, you should be looking for a USP or a consumer lab label. These are third-party labs that take a look at, at products, and they give sort of their stamp of approval if they think that they contain the right amounts. Also, Memorial Sloan Kettering recommends buying products made in the U.S. because they say other countries don't have rules that are quite as stringent as ours, and also from a major supplier. Like, look for a name that you recognize. Okay, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you. Quite a warning. I think it affects a lot of people. Appreciate it. Yeah. And you just heard from the Russian foreign minister a few moments ago, Sergei Lavrov, now seated pressing him about the role they could play, a possible yeah. prisoner swap for Americans they've detained. Our next guest is the sister of one of those Americans, Paul Whelan. She was at a meeting that Lavrov chaired here in New York. She is going to join us for that remarkable experience that happened next. In the Russian Federation, there are several American citizens who are serving sentences for various crimes. I refer to Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich. They were detained when they were committing a crime, receiving material that was a state secret. That's the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, talking about the detained Americans, wrongfully detained, Evan Gershkovich, a Wall Street Journal reporter, and the former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. These are the last photos that Whelan's family saw of him at his trial three years ago. Whelan was sentenced to 16 years in prison in 2020 after being arrested on espionage charges at a Moscow hotel in December 2018. His sister Elizabeth actually attended the United Nations Security Council meeting yesterday that the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov chaired on Monday. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield specifically referenced Whelan's presence in the room. Where today we're joined by Paul's sister, Elizabeth. And I want Minister Lavrov to look into her eyes and see her suffering. I want you to see what it's like to miss your brother for four years. And Elizabeth joins us now. Thank you so much for being here and coming in person. What was it like to actually not only be in the same room as him, but you actually made eye contact with Sergei Lavrov? Yes, I, I literally sat there for two hours staring at him. And, um, and as you saw, the ambassador um, asked me to, to uh, she indicated me and I, I stood up and they looked over, uh, which I was surprised at. I thought he would shuffle papers or do something like that. But I thought it was really important for Paul's sake to show the face of, of someone who was being wrongfully detained in Russia. Your brother Paul has been wrongfully detained for now 1,580 days exactly. And since his detention, we've seen the release of Brittany Greiner. Uh, we've also seen the detention of the journalist Evan Gershkovich. Do you feel more or less hopeful now that your brother will come home soon? Well, through this entire um, process, and also with, with Trevor Reed yes. uh, being held. Um, interviewed. Exactly. Uh, the Russians have dealt with Paul a sort of a separate case. We don't know if that will continue. Um, Evan has been charged with the same crime of, of right. espionage. So we'll have to see how that, that works out. To, to that out. point, let's just play for our viewers to remind them what President Biden said. We were on the air the morning that Brittany Griner was released, and President Biden addressed why he thinks the Russians are treating your brother differently. Here's what he said. For totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. 
as you hear that, and now look at Evan also detained under the same um, false accusations, what do you think? Well, of course, I'm, I'm hoping that the same type of effort is put towards both of them. Um, no American should be wrongfully detained by a foreign country. Um, you know, that's hostage diplomacy. That's an attempt to get something from America uh, using our people as pawns. It has to stop. And, and I want my brother home. You haven't talked to your brother since 2018, right? December That's 2018? Right. Yeah. He did get the chance to speak with the U.S. ambassador to Russia recently. I know they had uh, quite a long conversation. What were the biggest takeaways that the ambassador had from that conversation? Um, I'm not sure. We haven't um, had an opportunity to, to speak to the ambassador about that conversation. Why not? Um, that kind of surprises me. Well, I think it's as uh, timing as much as, as anything. Um, and of course, Paul is the detainee. So, you know, they have their own relationship now, their own, their own discussion. But we do speak to other people within um, the U.S. government. Uh, and of course, we were delighted to hear about that phone call. Um, it's really important, I think, for Paul's morale that he knows he has that support. Uh, we also heard from the envoy for hostage affairs sort of who oversees these discussions with Russia, and that's Roger Carsons, who spoke with your brother just a few weeks ago. Um, he, he told us, he told CNN, Paul sings the national anthem every day from his prison cell. Do you know anything else about what his life is like detained now? You know, we don't have an awful lot of detail. He can speak to my parents in um, short phone calls a number of times a week. But he also is being listened to by the guards. And there's information. We still don't know the details of his arrest, what happened at the trial, uh, anything of, of that nature. But I, I think it's important that although we think of Paul, you know, he's strong, he's singing the national anthem, um, he has to pull that strength forward every single day. He has to find that within in himself every day while he waits for the news that he will finally be coming home. And as you said, 1,580 days later, it has not happened. Are you getting what you need from the White House right now? Well, I got a little frustrated a couple of weeks ago. When Evan was arrested, we relived Paul's arrest. I, our whole family just, it, it was like a flashback. And I was very concerned and I remain concerned that Paul will be left behind a third time. And so I felt I needed to speak out a little bit about that. Since then, we have had some conversations with the White House that assure me that they're, they continue to be committed to bringing Paul home. But I also am committed to um, to pushing to make sure that he is not left behind again. Yeah, and no one can blame you for that, of course. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you very much for having me. Just hours from now, a parole board in Oklahoma will meet, and they will decide the fate of death row inmate Richard Glossop. In an unprecedented move, this has never happened in the state, the Attorney General of Oklahoma is urging that board to grant him clemency he sent a letter to the board yesterday, and his office said that he will sit at the hearing today. That's also unprecedented. In 1998, Glossop was convicted in a murder-for-hire plot against his then-boss. He has maintained his innocence. Now the attorney general says, quote, material evidence was not disclosed to the jury. Kim Kardashian, who has been a big advocate of social justice reform uh, and worked against the death penalty, she tweeted her support this week for Glossop. I asked her about that yesterday. Watch. Why do you believe he deserves a full pardon? He has a hearing tomorrow. Yeah, his hearing's tomorrow. Um, you know, I think that there was hardly any evidence that linked him, if none, you know, to, to his case. And I think that I personally don't believe in the death penalty. And I think that 
everyone deserves at least to have their case fully examined before they're about to be executed. It's just really that simple. And I just don't feel like he's gotten a fair um, chance. The attorney general urged a new trial. The Court of Appeals denied that. Glossop will be executed May 18th if nothing changes. This is his ninth execution date. Next hour on CNN This Morning, we'll have much more of that wide-ranging interview with Kim Kardashian. We'll be right back. This morning, Californians are bracing for flooding as record snowfall over parts of the Sierra Nevada is melting. Rivers and streams have been filling up thanks to record rain and snow across the state. But now this comes as temperatures are beginning to rise in the hope that the snow is not melting too fast. Our CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam has the forecast. Derek, obviously this is the major concern that always happens here is when there's a ton of snow, a ton of rain, and then potentially a ton of flooding. Yeah, it's concerning enough that they are actually closing parts of the Yosemite Valley from Friday right through the weekend. Get this, there is 56 inches of snow water equivalent built up across the mountains of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And that's like 56 inches of rainwater that wants to be released into the rivers and the valleys below. So as the temperatures warm, we start to get outside more often. And the concern is that people will want to cool themselves off in these rivers, which will be running very fast and very cold. Remember, uh, you can lose body heat 25 times faster in cold water compared to that of cold air. Now, when we look at the snowfall that has occurred so far this season, it has been mind-boggling. The Southern Sierra setting a snowfall pack equivalent to date of 324% of average. That's snow water equivalent. They've never had that much snow in the mountains. But going forward, uh, looking across the state, the past three years, we haven't even broken uh, the average snowpack equivalent across the state. But this year, completely, completely different story, Caitlin, 256% of average. And that water, that wants to melt. And that's the concern going forward. Yeah, unbelievable, 256%. Obviously, thinking yeah. of everyone there and how they're prepared right. for this. Derek, I know you'll stay on it. Thank you so much. Will do. And okay. CNN This Morning continues right now. Deep uncertainty on Capitol Hill over Speaker McCarthy's plan to raise the nation's debt limit. Kevin McCarthy is scrambling behind the scenes to lock down the votes to get this passed. When you've maxed out your credit cards, it's a pretty good time to evaluate your spending habits. No one in this country can afford the risk of default, which is why Republicans should take it off the table. E. Jean Carroll expected to take the stand today in her civil case against Donald Trump. Her attorneys laid out their case that Donald Trump raped Carroll in a department store dressing room in the spring of 1996. Trump's lawyer denied that allegation, saying Carroll schemed with others to hurt Trump politically. The judge has ruled two other women who alleged Trump forced himself on them can also take the stand. U.S. intelligence has confirmed the mastermind by the Delhi 2021 suicide bombing at Kabul airport has been killed by the Taliban. The White House hasn't said when exactly he was killed or how. The chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee said, quote, any time a terrorist is taken off of the board is a good day, but this does not diminish the Biden administration's culpability. Collective national incompetence, that's the way a brutal new report describes the federal government's response to the COVID pandemic. Over 1.1 million COVID deaths in the U.S. did not need to happen. If anything, we have a clear roadmap about what is needed. I just hope we really focus on putting those solutions in place. 
You care most about people that we as a society have thrown away. And I wonder why that is. It takes 10, 20 years to do what I did in six months. And I didn't realize the fight at that time. Do you think this will be your life's most meaningful work ahead? I hope so. I hope so. Good morning, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Much more on that interesting interview with Kim Kardashian. Of course, that's coming up, but we've got a lot of headlines to get to this morning. In just a few hours, the woman who was accused for President Trump of raping her could take the stand as part of her battery and defamation lawsuit against him. That's the columnist Eugene Carroll. She's expected to testify along with an employee from Bergdorf Goodman. That's according to a source telling CNN. As Carroll, of course, is alleging that Trump has assaulted her in a dressing room at the department store in the mid-90s. Those are allegations we should note the former president has denied. I preceded him into the dressing room. The minute he closed that door, I was banged up against the wall. He slammed you against the wall. Yeah, I hit my head really hard. These are allegations that Eugene Carroll has made for years. That was an interview from 2019. But now this is all coming to a head in court. On Tuesday, a jury of nine people was impaneled for the case. It's six men, three women. And according to the judge, those jurors are going to be transported to the courthouse, actually, in marshal supervised vehicles. They'll go through a garage to avoid the crowd that they expect to form outside the courthouse. During opening statements on Tuesday, Carroll's attorney revealed that two other alleged victims of Trump's are expected to testify because they want to showcase a pattern of what they say is alleged violent behavior. Sean Crowley, the attorney, said three women, three women, one clear pattern. Start with a friendly encounter in a semi-public place. All of a sudden, pounce, kiss, grab, grope, don't wait. When you are a star, you can do anything you want. And when they speak up about what happened, attack, humiliate them, call them liars, call them too ugly to assault. Those are the comments from the attorney. That's Carol's attorney speaking directly to what Trump had said, of course, in that now infamous Access Hollywood tape. That tape, we are told, will also be shown to the jury. Trump has said that these accusations are a hoax and a lie. He has said, quote, this woman is not my type. Attorneys for Carol are expected to show the jury this photo and point to a deposition that Trump did in October 2022 where he mistook Carol for his ex-wife, Marla Maples. It's Marla, Trump said when he was shown the photo. That's Marla. Yeah, that's my wife. Breaking overnight, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reversed course in the early hours of the morning and changed the debt limit bill that he had put forward, agreeing to make two major changes in a bid to try to get enough Republican votes to pass it in the House today. McCarthy and his allies scrambled behind the scenes to find a way to convince two different groups of holdouts to back the legislation. So here are the changes they made. They're accelerating the work requirements and when they'd go into effect by one year. That was a major ask by Matt Gates, for example, who was leaning against the bill late last night. The number two request uh, change leadership says that it would not repeal some of the biofuel tax credits that had caused major heartburn for some Midwestern Republicans in the House. And the timing here is important. There is a new fear this morning that the government could default on its debt as soon as early June because of weak tax collections. So while McCarthy is trying to force President Biden to negotiate on spending cuts that would gut his agenda, the White House is refusing to budge and vowing to veto McCarthy's bill if it somehow passes the House and the Senate. Let's talk about all this, where we are, where we're going to get on the debt ceiling. Happy to be joined this morning by the White House Director of OMB, Office of Management and Budget, Shalonda Young. Director Young, thank you and good morning. 
Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. There was a lot of a lot there because a lot changed at about two in the morning last night with McCarthy. Um, Given where we are in this bad news about weaker tax receipts, meaning the government got less money from us, the taxpayers, so that means we could default sooner. Can you help the American people understand why uh, the White House won't negotiate with Kevin McCarthy on the debt ceiling? Sure. Let's take a step back and remember what we're talking about. This can seem incredibly complicated uh, for most Americans who don't follow this day in and day out. Uh, It's not. It's very simple. What we see congressional Republicans do is say, hey, we won't default only if we get to cut millions of dollars to programs that help middle class and working families in this country. Uh, We think that's wrong. And we've said from the beginning, default has to be off the table. Remember, for the last president, bipartisan members of Congress came together and avoided default three times. The only thing that's different is who sits in the White House. That's political games. That's brinksmanship. We're happy to talk about spending levels. What's the appropriate uh, spending level for programs? That's separate. We need to avoid default. It's separate for you, but McCarthy doesn't want it to all be separate. The Congressional Budget Office uh, came out this week and said that his plan would... I know you I know you don't like it and 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 you point out where the cuts are, but it would put about four point eight trillion dollars toward deficit reduction over the next 10 years. And that's a huge concern. There's a new Pew poll uh, just from February, and it shows Americans, not just Republicans, not just Democrats, Americans across party lines are really, really worried about the deficit. Why, Why can't you do both things at once? Look, it actually is a separate process. I worked on it for almost 15 years. Uh, in the House of Representatives. It's called their appropriations process. Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, yeah, as a matter of fact, in December, uh, we worked in a bipartisan way to fund the government for the year. And by the way, don't be so sure that these savings get realized. This is why you don't see a full budget coming out of House Republicans, because their tax agenda is not reflected uh, in the document uh, that they're set to vote on this week. And remember, it is a stated policy of the Republican Party uh, to support tax cuts that are skewed to the wealthy in this country. So you spend $3 trillion on tax cuts, you actually don't re- uh, realize those savings yeah. uh, in their bill. So that is a bait and switch. I think that's a fair point if we were to see something again like the 2017 tax cuts if Republicans are in, in power. I, I, I think the, the issue is this is the only score we can go with right now is is what the CBO says and the nonpartisan, obviously. Look, let, let's talk about the real impact then for American people. Uh, a few weeks ago, we sat down with Jamie Dimon, who the White House has been talking to a lot through this banking crisis. And here's what he said the risk is, Director Young, about even getting close to a default in early June. The only question is, how close they get to it before they do it, because you'll feel the pain before it happens. How much pain, even if we don't default, it's, if think, we get to the brink? I think it's a bad idea. And, you know, we, the, our government get, debt can be downgraded again. So the closer we get to that, the more we're going to damage all of that. And then you'll see it in the markets. You'll see it. And that will, but, that will scare people. Well, is the White House preparing for that possibility of what the real adverse impact would be for Americans on jobs? income, livelihood, even getting close to the brink? Look, we actually, we agree with uh, the last clip you played. That's why we continue to say default should not be a part of Washington, D.C. brinksmanship. 
we know how to do this. Bipartisan members, many of them still in the House, on the Republican side, voted three times for the last president. It's a simple solution here. We shouldn't get close to the date. In 2011, I remember this. I worked in the House of Representatives at the time. Getting close to flirting with is detrimental to our full faith and credit in this country. It will cost American families. Uh, and we think that's wrong. So we agree with that. Take it off the table. Let's not have games. Let's not have drama around this. Congress needs to do its constitutional duty. Jamie Dimon also told me he does think that, you, that there should be negotiations on this. Look, you've got some Democrats, finally, director, in Congress who have privately told CNN that they think that the president should negotiate. They think he should sit down with Kevin McCarthy and negotiate. It's just too dangerous not to. Your leverage here is unity, keeping the party together. How long can you keep that up if they're privately well, saying this? Go ahead. Well, I'm certainly not going to opine on uh, private conversations. What I would say are, is Democrats are united uh, in saying that default is detrimental to Americans. Uh, Democrats also know the meaning of what these uh, budget cuts mean. Are we really talking about cutting veterans' medical care? Because that's what non-defense discretionary is. This is why it's vague on purpose. When people hear what these are, what they want in exchange for doing their job, people don't like it. Veterans' medical care, Meals on Wheels, rail safety inspectors, less TSA agents, the summer uh, rush time at the airport, uh, that's wrongheaded. So if you want to have an honest conversation, negotiation, whatever you want to call it, about spending values and who you're for in this country, let's do that. Remember, this president put out a budget uh, that gave us a pass to cut the deficit by almost $3 trillion over 10 years. By the way, he was also honest about what his tax policy was. It was a full budget. Uh, he did that. Uh, Republicans don't want to put their full picture out. We're happy to have that debate, not with hostage taking. Director uh, Young, I appreciate your time. Come back. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. You got it. Caitlin. You see Shalonda Young there on the White House lawn. We're also learning something from the White House this morning, announcing the Taliban has now killed the ISIS-K leader who was responsible for planning that 2021 bombing that happened at the Kabul airport. That was the attack, of course, that took place during the final days of the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. It killed 13 American service members and more than 100 and 70 Afghans. The White House did not release the leader's name, but defense officials have confirmed he was killed earlier this month and that the U.S. was not involved in this operation. Right now, it's still unclear whether or not the Taliban was specifically targeting him or if he was killed as a result of Taliban efforts to crack down on ISIS-K, that terrorist cell, throughout the country. Also this morning here in the United States, there is a new grim statistic coming out of the FBI. A newly released report has found that the U.S. actually experienced more casualties from active shooter situations in 2022 than in the last several years altogether. CNN's chief law enforcement intelligence analyst John Miller is tracking this new report. John, this is, you know, just to look at this and to see how the numbers have changed over the years, it's hard to even fathom how much it's gone up. It really is. And, you know, the FBI has been tracking this more carefully, looking not just for numbers, but for answers. This report was actually only released publicly about 10 minutes ago. But yeah. what it tells us is uh, the active shooter in the United States for 2022, 50 shootings in 25 states um, every day of the week um, has an active shooter um, occurrence. When you look at the cost of that, though, go back to 2018, you see 225 casualties, 2019, 258. 
what happens in 2020 is COVID, and right. you see a sharp decrease because people are on lockdown, people are at home. Uh, but by 2021, it's spiking back up to 243, um, and then 20, 2022, 313. So we're going in the wrong direction, obviously. Yeah, by quite a significant amount. And of course, the big question, of course, is what this means about guns, what that looks like in the United States. I know that was a big part of this report as well. What did you learn and what are your takeaways when it comes to the firearms that are being used by these shooters? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we think of the active shooter, the AK-47, the AR-15. Um, but when you look at the weapons broken down, it comes to about half rifles, half pistols. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's a... Uh, it's nothing you would minimize. If you go back to the Virginia Tech shooting, uh, that was an individual with two pistols who, you know, achieved a record body count, which, you know, it's about the guns, not the type. Right. And how they're used, of course. And so I guess the big question when they do a report like this and you see how the numbers are going up, as you said, going in the wrong direction, people want to know what what's the solution here? How do you fix this? What are their takeaways from this? So the study goes deep. This is a really interesting caveat because we talk about mass shootings. Mass shootings and active shooters are different. Every active shooter intends to be a mass shooting, but not every mass shooting is an active shooter. So in the FBI, in the FBI definition of an active shooter, that's someone who planned to go somewhere and shoot a bunch of strangers. It's like Nashville. It's like Louisville, um, you know, a workplace, a school. Uh, the mass shootings also occurred during criminal activity, gang violence, drug violence, uh, you know, criminals uh, that involved shootouts with other criminals. So this is a separate category. If you go by mass shootings last year, you know, there's 163, um, uh, actually this year, 163 mass shootings. Remember, we kept saying, I think during Louisville, there have been more mass shootings than we've had days in the week. Yeah. But studying the psychology of the active shooter is important because what you're looking for is predictors. Uh, so far, the FBI behavioral science people, and I was talking to Mary Ellen O'Toole, the renowned profiler last night, you know, uh, there's a connection numerically with domestic violence. There's also something called leakage, which is in a very high percentage, 85 to 95% of active shooters, you find them either telling people directly what they're gonna do before it happens, or giving broad hints that could have been identified if people reported it. And all of that's so important because if we're going to try to get, you know, this to go in the other direction of what we were seeing earlier, you have to know how it happens. John Miller, thanks for your takeaways from that report. Really interesting. Thanks, Caitlin. Also, another report, a scathing report, examines how the United States handled the COVID outbreak and whether this country is ready for another possible pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci joined CNN this morning to respond more CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back. With the United States set to end its COVID-19 emergency declarations next month, the question remains, are we ready? Is America going to be ready for the next pandemic? The outlook is not great, according to a new assessment called Lessons from the COVID War. It answers that question with a definitive no. The report from a leading panel of public health experts, physicians, and federal advisors blames a, quote, collective national incompetence for go in governance for America's lackluster response to COVID-19. It warns that could happen again. The report also found that uh, out of the 1.2 million American deaths from COVID, 500,000 roughly 
could have been prevented. Even though the U.S. government spent $5 trillion dealing with the pandemic, better preparedness could have saved lives and money. Dr. Michael Osterholm, who you saw a lot on this network during the pandemic, he's one of the members of the COVID crisis group, and he sums up America's failure to combat COVID like this. I think one of the first things was is that we couldn't imagine that this would happen and therefore we denied that it was going to happen. I think the second thing was is we really lacked humility. We needed as a scientific community to be able to say, we're not certain about this, we don't know. And then third, I think, is, is that it got politicized. You know, this virus didn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or if you're older or if you were young, it went at you. For more on all of this, let's bring in Dr. Anthony Fauci, the former chief medical advisor to President Biden, and of course, the former director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, also the subject of a wide-ranging and sometimes contentious interview that was published this week in the New York Times Magazine, where he reflects upon the successes, but also the missteps of America's own pandemic response. Good morning, Dr. Fauci, and thank you for being here. I, I want to start with this new after action assessment, basically, that we're seeing from all of these, these people that I know you know very well as well. They say that they believe the U.S. had a more disappointing pandemic response than other countries. Would you agree with that characterization? Yeah, there were a lot of problems, Caitlin, that we had. We had a fractionated response. And, you know, as, as Mike Osterholm just mentioned, there was a lot of politicization. We thought we were the best prepared country in some respects from a scientific standpoint, as manifested by the really overwhelming success of the rapid development of the vaccine, then we did very well. But when it came to the implementation of public health, the uniformity of a response, the communication, the ability to get data in real time, we really fell very short. So hopefully the lessons learned from that type of a really strict analysis of what went wrong will help prepare us for future pandemics. But no doubt about it, there were a lot of things that we didn't do as well as we could, and we've got to do better, not only in the continued response to the current outbreak, but in preparation for the inevitability of future outbreaks. Yeah, and that's why this is so important, to look back at what happened, not just to criticize people, but to, to learn, to see what can be changed going forward. You know, the public health emergency is actually ending in about two weeks. Do you think it's the right time for that to end? You know, there's obviously debate about that, but I think in general, we really need to move forward so long as we don't leave a big gap in being able to take care of the people who may not have available to them now the things that were very, very important to them at the time that we had all of the issues that were related to the emergency. We want to be able to have a, some sort of a safety net for them to be able to get drugs and to be able to get vaccines so those things don't fall between the cracks. If we take care of that, I think that it's important to move forward. I mean, everybody wants this outbreak behind us. We wanna make sure we don't just forget about it completely because we still have about 150 deaths per day and there's still a lot of virus out there. So we can't just completely forget about it. We gotta to continue to pay attention to it. Yeah, a lot of questions about what the effects of that ending would look like. I want to get into this New York, <clears throat> excuse me, this New York Times interview that you did, it really just basically looking at, back at not just how you handled it, how the U.S. handled it overall. You talked about being perceived as kind of the personification of restrictions. And you had this quote that stood out to me. You said, show me a school that I shut down. Show me a factory that I shut down. Never. I never did. I gave a public health recommendation that echoed the CDC's recommendation. And people made a decision 
based on that. Now, I don't have to tell you that people who have criticized your, your response have seized on that comment in particular to say, yeah, you weren't directly responsible for Prattville Elementary School closing or whatnot, but because of the recommendations that came from you and other top public health officials, those are decisions that you saw school administrators make, governors make, and you understand the influence that your recommendations had on decisions like that, right? Well, that's true, Caitlin, but the point that I made in my response uh, to the reporter in the New York Times article was that what it is is that there was a personification of me as a person who essentially closed everything down. Those were public health recommendations that came from the CDC, and I have always been very supportive of the CDC because they base their recommendations purely on public health issues. And the point that I made that as public health officials, it's our responsibility to give the public health perspective to it. The decision of how that balances with other considerations really comes from other authorities, from authorities who have things other than just the public health to be concerned about, economic and other considerations. So that's the point I was making. I was not trying to shun away from responsibility. We made a public health recommendation based on sound public health principles. But that's not the only issue that you need to consider when you're in the middle of an outbreak. Well, you have right. to consider a number of other things, and that's the point we we're making. Right? I think a lot of parents and teachers would say, well, yeah, the CDC, when they made these recommendations, they should have considered the effects that learning loss would have on children when they're making a decision like that. Is that, is that something you agree with? No, I do. I, I believe that you have to consider a, a variety of other things. But Remember, at the time that the shutdown occurred, I mean, you have to distinguish, Caitlin, between the crisis at the point when our hospitals were being overrun and we were having cooler trucks to put bodies in because we didn't have enough room in a morgue. That's when things shut down. The real issue is how long do you keep that shutdown? How long do you keep the schools closed? And if you recall and go back on many of the things I've said in a lot of interviews is that we've got to do whatever we can to get the schools open and get them open safe and keep them open. And I've said that many, many times, but the initial decision early on in the middle of that crisis, I believe was the right decision. How long you kept them closed really varied depending upon the locale. In addition to schools, masking was probably one of the most divisive parts of COVID. I think whether or not people wore one, whether they had to wear one. A really striking comment that you made in this interview you said, from a broad public health standpoint, and I'm quoting you now, at the population level, masks work at the margins maybe 10%. You once said a, a national <clears throat> mask mandate could work. That comment saying, you know, they work at the margins maybe 10%, I think, would raise a lot of eyebrows given so many people had to wear a mask, whether they were on a plane, whether they were in certain right. public facilities. To hear that they only work at the margins, maybe 10%, would make a lot of people ask, okay, then why was I wearing a mask for so many times? You know, Caitlin, we got to be careful because if you read very carefully what I said, if you look at the broad public health effect, when you have masks that are so-called mandated or supposed to be worn, because so many people don't wear them, even though they're in an arena in which masks are supposed to be worn, or they don't wear them properly from a public health standpoint on the cohort of people, the effect can be only marginal. And as we mentioned, it was 10, 13% or so. But for the individual 
who religiously wears a properly fitted mask, the effect is much, much, much better than that. It's 85, 90% or more. So we were trying to distinguish between what the broad effect on a population is when you have mask wearing versus the effect on the individual who religiously and properly wears the mask. There's a big difference there. That's what we were referring to about on the margins versus an individual effect of a person. Yeah, there is a big difference, of course, in like someone like a doctor or someone who's used to doing this. In hindsight, though, when you look at this, do you think the mask mandates were, were a mistake? You know, I want, uh, Caitlin, I don't want to say a mistake, but I think we really need to remember next time we're, we're confronted with this, that when you have a situation where there's doubt in the minds of some people about whether something works or not, we better try to reach out and be a better explainer of why we feel these things are important. Because whenever, particularly in our country with our free spirit, which we all embrace, that people being told what to do very often has the opposite effect. That's what I was referring to in that interview. Yeah, I know you said a similar thing about vaccine requirements as well. One last question, something else that was at the end of your interview, you referenced the work that you did with HIV and with AIDS and the outreach that you felt changed how that response was, your outreach to that community specifically. And you said, I've always felt when people are pushing back at you, even though in many respects are often left field somewhere, there always appears to be a kernel of truth, maybe a small kernel or a big segment of truth in what they say. One of the things that we really need to do is we need to reach out now and find out exactly what it was that made them push back. Referencing people who did have problems wearing a mask with vaccine requirements. Who do you think should be doing that outreach before, before there is another pandemic, if it's inevitable, as you say? You know, Caitlin, I think we all should be doing it. I believe public health officials should be doing it. People who are political leaders should be doing it. The point I was making at the end, I felt very, very sincerely. There was a lot of, you know, opposition of do this, don't do this, people pushing back. Those people could not all be wrong. We've got to understand what the underlying reason why they were pushing back about what looked like completely valid public health principles. There's something wrong with that. We were not doing something completely correctly because we can't have those many people who are fundamentally good people, yet they're pushing back on things that are life-saving. We got to figure that out and we got to reach out to those people and not make them the opposition. That's the point I was making. Yeah. All right. It's good to look back at, at all of this, obviously, because the questions about what happens when there is another pandemic. Dr. Fauci, thank you for your time this morning. I think what's so important. Good to be with you. Sorry. I think what's so important about that is hearing reflection and what worked as much as they thought, what might not have and what could be done differently, given that startling report. Well, because it is a question of what happens going forward. But there is also still a lot of anger and animosity across the country. And that would not surprise anyone over COVID and how it was handled and what could be done better. And, of course, how you rely on and institutions like the CDC and others. And schools and learning loss. I think yeah. every parent was tuning in for that. Um, Absolutely. That was a great conversation. Keeping up, switching gears, with the Kardashians is tough, right, for anyone. Especially keeping up with Kim Kardashian. She's a TV star, entrepreneur, and a criminal justice reform advocate. We may not be able to keep up, but I did catch up with her yesterday, and I asked her about the fight to release a prisoner that changed the trajectory of her whole life. 
thank Kim Kardashian West. Kim, yes. my angel. Yes. Thank you, thank you, Kim. We all remember that day. That was Alice Marie Johnson in 2018 thanking Kim Kardashian for helping her get out of prison after 21 years behind bars. Kim had lobbied then-President Trump on her behalf, convincing him to commute Johnson's sentence for a first-time nonviolent drug offense. It's a moment that Kim told me changed the entire trajectory of her life. She has become relentless in using her platform to advocate for criminal justice reform. And she says she's now pretty close to becoming a lawyer, possibly full-time, and this shocked me, possibly away from the cameras that made her a star. I had the opportunity to sit down with her yesterday at the Time 100 Summit right here in New York. Here's part of that conversation. You are always in the spotlight, and yet you care most about people who are never in the spotlight. You care most about people that we as, as a society have thrown away. And I wonder why that is. I think experience, maybe just life experiences, positive, negative, becoming a mom, you know, life changes you. I, you know, I think you get to a point where you have experiences that just change you. And when I met Alice and I felt like it was a fairly easy experience for me when I know it shouldn't be to help get someone out. It takes 10, 20 years to do what I did in six months. And I didn't realize the fight at that time. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a few phone calls. And that really struck me that, you know, however it was done, it was done. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful, but like, that that the system that process has to change. I think you're selling you know? yourself short, though, because Van Jones, one of your biggest cheerleaders, a good friend of ours at CNN, told me this about you: there is nobody like Kim. She is in a category of her own. She takes every case so seriously. She'll have read the file with more care than the attorneys. She will know the case backwards and forwards in every meeting. Do you think this will be your life's most meaningful work ahead? I hope so. I hope so. I always joke with my mom, who's my manager. I say, Kim K is retiring, and I'm just going to be an attorney. Kim Esquire. So, <laughs> yes. Um, so I was like, so you can go help my siblings. So. Are you? So you can still Is have a like, job. Is she like, what about my 10%? Or, no. Yes. Um, so I'm giving her the heads up. Are you, would you ever consider a life without the cameras? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do feel like I have a, um, there's a lot that's always on TV and a lot that's always out there. But I think my friends and my family know we really cherish a lot of our private times and, mm -hmm. um, I would be just as happy being an attorney full-time and doing that. Um, the journey just really opened up my eyes to so much that I just, it gets overwhelming because there's so much to be done. And I just, um, you know, I brought my sister Chloe to a prison for the first yeah, time last that. week and that was really eye-opening for her. And I just, um, I would totally spend more time doing that Cameras, no cameras. I, um, I don't think 
you know, we know your success stories with Alice uh, Marie Johnson, for example. Uh, but what not everyone knows is that you've also had efforts where you haven't been able to help that person get off death row. You were the last phone call for one inmate who was being executed. I mean, I, I remember seeing you in tears, so shaken because of that. What is that like to feel when you can put all your weight behind something and you still lose them? It's such an, I don't even know the word for it, but it's just, uh, it's like a really emotional experience. And so with that Brandon Bernard case that you're speaking of, who he was executed, it was really important for him to, uh, for, to allow me to tell his story. And I think that my role in all of this mm -hmm is to storytell and to explain people's stories and their histories. And I really think people would understand. And, you know, President Trump did understand once he started to hear these stories instead of just seeing their cases. And he went in being so pro-death penalty and really hard on crime to opening up his heart and realizing that so many people are inside that don't deserve to be and have completely rehabilitated themselves. And he passed a bill, the First Step Act, mm -hmm. and I think almost 30,000 people have been let out because of the storytelling of one woman that changed his mind. So I think storytelling, and I think that's what my role is, is to like really explain what people have been through to hopefully change the bigger picture. Have you talked to Craig? Have you talked to President Biden about this? Um, we have reached out. He has not done any commutations. Um, there's actually, Van and I were talking about a situation of a guy who got out, and they're actually trying to put them back in. So Fair to say you'd like a meeting in the Oval Office? I would love one. I would love one. Well, he's running again, yes. if you haven't heard. I heard. This morning. I heard. To the victims' families, you know, there are victim families who say, no, they don't support the work you're doing. What do you say to them? I completely understand that as well. And I, my empathy and belief in rehabilitation doesn't take away my compassion for what they've gone through as a family. Mm -hmm. And I do, and the people that I'm helping feel the same exact way. Mm -hmm. And we've had conversations about that. So I completely understand when someone reaches out, because the families do reach out sometimes. And I completely empathize with them as well. So they're not wrong, and that everyone has their own journey. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I just have to focus on what I think is the right thing. And I will always believe that people are deserving of second chances. It was remarkable to hear from her and to watch and really see what she is doing with this platform and what she's dedicating her life to. Let's talk about it with someone you heard about in that conversation, CNN political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones. He continues to work closely with Kim Kardashian on all of these fronts. Good morning, Van. Good morning. You call it to me. We talked a lot before yes. this interview. Yeah, yeah. The Kim Kardashian effect. Yes. Um, that's, that's the Kim I know. Um, you know, all the flash and the stuff that people uh, talk about. Uh, how sober she was, how seriously she takes this. Um, and it is really, truly amazing. She's not wrong. Uh, lawyers like myself, you will spend 10 years, 20 years on a case and sometimes lose 
when someone like Kim Kardashian, she has more Instagram followers than some countries have people, okay? <laughs> so when she reaches out to a governor or a senator or a president, they return the call. And sometimes that's all you need is just for someone to focus on the case. And you look, in these cases, some of them are just horrible. You can't believe somebody's going to do life uh, for a nonviolent uh, drug offense or somebody, you know, even the, the, the people who testified against them have recounted 15 years ago and said they were lying. And that person still might be put to death, but you can't get any attention. Kim picks up the, call, the phone and suddenly people are paying attention. And as I've said a million times, she's often more prepared than the lawyers. <laughs> she's often read wow. more of the cases, the background stuff. So she's just an extraordinary advocate. I love seeing criminal justice reform advocate uh, under her name, not, you know, celebrity, uh, because that's who she's becoming. Interesting to me to hear her say she wants a meeting with President Biden. Obviously, the president's time is precious. She did note he hasn't commuted anyone's sentence yet. That is obviously something the president has the power to do, pardons and commutations. What's your sense of what she would bring up to President Biden? What would be on her agenda if she did get the chance to sit down with him? Well, I think where she's been uh, successful uh, is in two areas. One is moving forward with cases where you're looking for clemency, where you're looking for people who are wrongfully convicted or just have ridiculous sentences to give them a chance to come home earlier. Uh, she was very effective with that with uh, President Trump, and she's been effective with, with governors. So I think she would probably focus on that. She's got an incredible expertise in that area. But she also uh, played a big role behind the scenes with getting the First Step Act passed. And there is the Equal Act, uh, which is a very important bill, which would uh, balance the, uh, the treatment of crack versus powder cocaine and would let uh, more people who've been in jail forever come home. And so she's a very effective advocate when it comes to legislature, legislation, when it comes to litigation. Uh, she's just she's our secret weapon for justice. She really, really is. Yeah, she's we spoke about the current death row inmate, Richard Glossop, who yes. is set to be executed on May 18th this week. She publicly called for a full pardon for him, which the attorney general of Oklahoma is taking steps. No attorney general there has ever taken before trying to get him a new trial. Yes. Do you think she could be Im impactful knowing the system in Oklahoma, knowing that the appeals court unanimously denied that request? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough. But, you know, uh, miracles are always possible uh, when the truth is on your side. Uh, that's the thing that we learned over and over again. Uh, it, it's it's really I think we have a criminal justice system that's much more broken than people know. Many more people are, are literally if you just had a different lawyer or lived in a different zip code or a different skin color or just more money to pay for one more uh, investigator, you would be home with your kids. But instead, you're sitting there on death row or you're sitting there in solitary confinement for decades. And so uh, you can be a difference maker. And by the way, uh, it's not just a celebrity like a Kim Kardashian. She'll tell you uh, anybody. If you step outside of that lane, if you, if you care about an issue, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's underprivileged kids, whatever it is, you can make a much bigger difference on an issue than you know. She had no idea she could do this stuff. And there are people who are watching this who can make a tremendous difference uh, you know, in their own area, in their own life, in their own neighborhood. It's just that the great thing about Kim is that she stepped outside of the norm and she found a whole different role for herself. That's not just true for Kim Kardashian. That's true for all of us. That's a call to action. Call to action. For a lot of us, man. <clears throat> Never forget the famous New Yorker cartoon. It says, well, how much justice can you afford? Right? <laughs> exactly. Remember that? Yeah. It's a real question of yeah. disparity on so many fronts. Yeah, man, it really thanks. is. And I, and I appreciate you, you being interested in these issues, whether, whether it's Kim or other people. You are, you're always there. I think CNN has done a great job of lifting up these issues. And I hope you keep doing it. And I was very, very proud to see Kim yesterday. Following your lead. Thanks, Thank fam. You. Thank you. All right. In less than three months, the U.S. women's soccer team is going to look to defend 
It's back-to-back World Cup championships. All of this is the U.S. soccer program is also going under undergoing major leadership changes, including finding a coach for the men's team. We're going to answers and have some questions about the future of U.S. soccer from the new sporting director, Matt Kroc. He'll join us here on set. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. U.S. soccer has finally named a new sporting director, and for many, it could not have come at a more pivotal moment. The Federation was rocked by a scandal following the 2022 Men's World Cup in Qatar. Accounts surfaced then of an incident that had happened more than 30 years before in which the coach, Greg Berhalter, had assaulted his then-girlfriend, now his wife. Two longtime friends of his reported the incident to U.S. soccer officials, but their apparent motivation was dissatisfaction that their son, who was the star midfielder, was not getting enough playing time. An independent investigation into the matter cleared the coach, we should note, but it did raise concerns about the organization's policies around parental conduct, how they communicate with staff, other issues as well. Joining us now is U.S. Soccer's new sporting director, Matt Crocker. Thank you so much for being here this morning. There are a lot of questions, and we want to get into uh, what that is going to look like with the search for the new coach, but you also have some really exciting things that are happening going forward when it comes to the women's team, what that's going to look like over the next several months. What are you most excited about right now? Yeah, I mean, you've got some key tournaments coming up. So uh, the World Cup in the summer for the women's team out in Australia and New Zealand is, uh, I guess, a fantastic opportunity for us to defend, stay world's number one. You know, uh, the team has been world's number one for 12 of the last 13 years. And and our objective is to make sure we keep pushing forward and and leading the way in, in women's soccer. Women's soccer, U.S. women's soccer, has, they've been champions for a long time, multiple times. What do you think is ahead for them, not only in the World Cup, but beyond? Yeah, I mean, the difficulty is the chasing pack is, is coming quick. So, you know, a lot of Europe now, there's been a huge amount of investment in, in, in women's soccer uh, across the board and uh, more professional teams in Europe. There's more leagues, which means that the, the women are fitter, stronger, training full time. They're more tactically and technically aware. And the, and the gap, I guess, between world's best they're, they're really chasing hard. So, you know, we've got a real challenge to stay on top, but we think we know where the competitive advantages are and we're working hard behind the scenes to make sure we stay on top. Yeah, so what does it change, you know, when you are closing that gap and it does change the nature of how you're preparing for something like what's in Australia? What is it, how does it change things behind the scenes? What are you doing differently? Yeah, I guess um, it's easy just to look at the on-the-field stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, the off-the-field stuff is, is equally important. So the culture around the team, you know, making sure psychologically we, we stay ahead. Um, you know, the mental side is a really massive, important part of the game. So, you know, it's not, just, uh, it's not just the technical or the tactical stuff that takes place on the field. There's so much that goes in behind the performance element, element to make sure that uh, uh, the women are in a great shape to make sure they're successful on the, on the field. Yeah. So let's talk about the search for new men's coach. Yeah. Um, we, we noted, we explained the Greg Berhalter situation in the intro. We noted that he's been cleared. I just want to read part of his statement that he said the lesson learned from that night over three decades ago became the foundation of a loving, devoted, supported relationship. Um, given that happened, given he was cleared, is he still a candidate for the job? I guess my job now is to look at the process that we're going to be leading going forward. So there's a number of key things when you appoint a, a national head coach. Um, and the big challenge is uh, not coaching every day on the field with the players because you only get the players between six and eight times a year. So you know, you've, got to, you've got to have a coach who's equally adept at working behind the scenes, following and tracking the players when they're away on international duty, planning for, for the events. So you know, a big part of uh, being a head coach is around 
you know, leadership, really. So uh, we're really looking for a strong leader to, to lead the programme going forward. So my job is to identify the process, make sure we get the behaviours right at the coach in terms of what style of play we want to play. But more importantly, make sure we've got the right leader to lead the team and the staff uh, into some key World Cup events going forward into 2026. And you have such a big role in that. I mean, obviously there's a board as well, but you yourself helping lead that search. You know, what is what does that look like to you? What are your standards for whoever is going to be the next yeah, coach? Of course. I think I mentioned about, you know, there's a certain style that we want to promote, soccer style. So what you would have seen in the 2022 World Cup was a team that was uh, fearless, fast, um, you know, technically very, very strong. So we want to continue to build on those elements. So, you know, we can use data to identify some coaches that really align to our style of play. And then clearly there's some, some leadership and some cultural elements that we want to breed. We want to make sure that we produce young men and women in both our, our teams that uh, take ownership and responsibility that can be future role models. So it's not just responsibility on the pitch, there's a massive responsibility off the pitch as well. Yeah. D just to follow up on that, to the point you just praised the 2022 team, that was Greg Berhalter's team. So mm -hmm. does that mean he's still a candidate? Yeah, of course. So, okay. you know, we want to make sure that uh, we identify the, the right candidate to take us forward into okay. 2026. And my job is to make sure we've got a really robust process to, to choose the right head coach going forward. Well, you've got a big job ahead of you. So thanks for taking time to join us on set this morning. Thank you. Yeah, Cocker, appreciate it. Nice to have you. All right, this just in. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping. What it could mean for Russia's war in Ukraine. That's incredibly significant news. We'll have more on that in a moment. Also, a manhunt underway here for four inmates who escaped a jail in Mississippi. One of them allegedly killing a man along that escape route. We have the latest on the investigation ahead. Good morning, everyone. We begin this hour with breaking news overnight. Last minute changes to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt limit bill. The Rules Committee worked through the night, adjourning at 520 this morning, really just before we went on air. This as McCarthy scrambles for Republican support ahead of today's possible vote. Also breaking news just in, Ukrainian President Zelensky has just had a conversation with Chinese President Xi Jinping. That's notable. They had not spoken since before Russia invaded Ukraine. Also a multi-state manhunt underway this hour for four inmates who escaped from a Mississippi jail, one of them accused of killing a man and stealing his truck after breaking out of prison. Where that investigation is this morning, this hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. And we do begin on the U.S. economy and breaking news overnight. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reversing course and making big changes to his debt limit plan in the early morning hours as he scrambles to try to get enough Republican votes to get it passed. Without objection, the committee's adjourned. Notice that said this morning when they right. adjourned. Like five hours ago? Yeah. Less than? Less than that. Three hours ago. Right. The Rules Committee working through the night. The gavel came down after a after. 5 a.m., we should say. And here's why this matters, because Kevin McCarthy said there were not going to be any changes, but actually overnight there were two big changes. Number one, they are going to allow proposed work requirements for Medicaid beneficiaries to be implemented on a faster timetable. That was an ask by Florida Congressman Matt Gates. The other change, number two, leadership says they would not repeal some of those biofuel tax credits that had caused some major heartburn for Midwestern Republicans who were in and out of McCarthy's office yesterday. House Speaker McCarthy is facing new urgency in the standoff with the White House over raising the debt limit. It's growing more likely that the government could default as soon as early June 
If Congress does not act, of course, then we've all talked about how that could lead to an economic disaster. So for more on that, we want to bring in Christine Romans. Uh, of course, McCarthy's saying he's not going to change the plan. He changed it overnight. The Senate has said this is dead on arrival, but it's still important because House Republicans will still have to vote on yes, this. Yes, absolutely. And look, I mean, you couldn't get those Midwestern Republicans without allowing the biofuel tax breaks to stay. And um, there were some there were conservative members uh, of the caucus who really wanted to make sure you could speed up some of these timelines to tie work requirements with Medicaid and some other social uh, programs. So these were things that that really he had to do to get all the, the numbers on board. But that's the political football that the debt ceiling has become here. I mean, the loser in the football game is the American people and American living standards, right? I mean, this is what we know we're facing. And we're facing this a lot sooner than we thought. I mean, tax receipts are down something like 35% from the same time uh, last year. That means less money is coming in in the tax season. And that money is being used to pay the bills because after January 19th, we couldn't borrow any more money. So this is really incredibly important. That's fascinating. And it's coming much sooner than we thought. So early June is this so-called X date. And they're running out of time for a compromise here. I think it's fascinating, too, that literally how much people paid the government in their taxes affects when this could happen. Yeah, it's changing the dynamic of what we're seeing happening in real time, what you heard from the White House budget director, how concerned they are if they don't actually come to an agreement. The risk of a debt default is not zero, and that is not where we should ever be here. A debt default, of course, would cripple global markets. It would probably cause treasury prices to fall, yields to rise, borrowing costs to spike, stock market crashes probably around the world, a big decline in the dollar as people are selling treasuries and selling the dollar, which would undermine the stability of, of, of highly indebted international economies, right? So the risks are just terrible all around. So as we talk about the political horse trading, I just want to always step back and say, this is this is the outcome for the American people is very, very bad here. Another thing, look, this, what, what Republicans want to do is save about $4.8 trillion over the next decade. That's how the CBO has scored McCarthy's plan. Um, but Moody's ran these numbers, Mark Zandi and his colleagues at Moody's mm -hmm. Analytics. So, OK, you're talking about 10 years of spending cuts. Well, spending cuts would slow the economy. In the near term, you would have uh, real GDP about 1.6 percent next year under the McCarthy plan, compared with the clean bill that the president wants, 2.25 percent so GDP. so interesting. So you, what, you, you have Republicans who want to slow the economy. That's what this plan literally does. And Moody says that is about 780,000 jobs would be lost if you go back to 2022 spending levels and you start talking wow. about these cuts. I just wish we had you by our side always <laughs> to help explain that and bring it home to the American Or maybe people. on Capitol Hill. Yeah, maybe on their <laughs> side. Thank you. They speak a different language about this on Capitol Hill than they do, like, you know, in global economic centers. Well, Christian Romans, they certainly do. So let's go to Capitol Hill. We've got Republican Congressman Brian Mast of Florida, who is there. He is on the Foreign Affairs Committee, of course, a Republican. Uh, Congressman, thanks for being with us this morning. I know that Republicans were working late into the night last night. Do they have the votes yet to get this passed? I'll find out at about 9 a.m. Whether we have the votes, we'll be at a meeting. Everybody will come together. There was a lot that was mentioned there. If you want to unpack any of it, I look forward to talking about it. There was a lot that was mentioned there. I mean, the concerns, of course, you heard what Christine was saying about the Moody's analysis, about 780,000 jobs being lost from this. But on the votes today, you said you're going to find out at 9 a.m. when Republicans go and meet. Do you think this vote is actually going to happen today? I think that this vote happens today, but let's again talk okay. about the D.C. sausage, how it's made. This is a vote that moves something over to the Senate. 
you can count on the fact that there will be another vote after this, whether it's in a week or a month, because something will come back from the Senate uh, with Republicans and, and Democrats over there and whatever the president has to say after that. There will have to be another vote for whatever comes out of all of that. Yeah, that's right, because the Senate has said, you know, Regardless, this proposal is dead on arrival, but Republicans still have to vote together to get it passed. Right now, they don't have the votes. Do you have any concerns? Have you had concerns from Republican lawmakers about voting on this, putting their name and their vote on the record when it comes to things like the the new work requirements, something that was changed overnight, uh, blocking Biden's move on student debt? Are there any concerns about putting their name on that, even if it's not actually going to happen? I haven't heard concerns about that. Matt Gates and I have uh, spoken length about the work requirements, and I just use myself as an example. I'm never going to be 100% in life. In life. I, I, I lost two legs and a finger. And the point that I'm making here is that just because we're not 100% doesn't mean that we're work capable. And we have to get to the point in America that people go to work, have that pride that, that you get from going out there and producing and bringing home. And that has to be a part of it. So we've talked about that in length. Everything else that's on the table, you talked about growing the economy, that has to happen. You can't grow the economy with the Inflation Reduction Act in place destroying American energy policy and making energy more expensive for Americans. That can't be something that takes place. And you talked about lower tax receipts. Well, that's a part of this conversation as well, because what we're talking about dealing with, if there's lower tax receipts, we should really be paying attention to where Americans' tax dollars are going. And it's not even redistribution of wealth. It's redistribution of anybody that's paying taxes, whether it's what's going on with the, the tax you're going to be charged because you have good credit score with a mortgage or paying somebody else's student loan. Those are the things that we have on the table to say, let's ax those bad policies for America. Let's grow the economy. Let's claw back dollars. That makes sense to most people I talk to. Well, I should note, if we're talking about Americans' tax receipts and what that looks like, part of what Republicans are passing here would cut back the number of IRS agents and the funding that President Biden wanted to add to the IRS there. So that's a little bit ironic. But Kevin McCarthy said there weren't going to be any changes to this Light last night, as we saw going until just a few moments before we were on air this morning, there were changes that were made. Do you think there will be any other changes made to this? I know there'll be proposals for changes this morning as we go into that 9 a.m. meeting. But Kevin McCarthy making changes, talking about this, dealing with the whole of his conference, that is the difference between what is going on in the House and what is going on in the White House right now. They haven't spoke with McCarthy in weeks, if not months, about this. They're not willing to deal with this as an issue other than to say, hey, listen, we're not interested in cutting any of this wasteful spending, throwing away of the taxpayer dollars, people that are getting up and going to work this morning, they're not interested in doing that. That's the big difference of what's taking place. Well, I would note the White House said yesterday they are willing to meet with McCarthy when it comes to talking about the budget, not the debt limit, and the conditions Republicans want to put on that. I do want to ask you about something else, though, because, of course, you're a Republican, but you're also from Florida. And you recently came out and endorsed former President Trump in his 2024 run, even though it's widely assumed that your home state governor is also going to be running for that nomination. Why did you pick Trump over DeSantis? Take any issue that you could bring up on this show, whether it's dealing with China and trade policy or China and Taiwan or Vladimir Putin specifically, Russia, Ukraine, the way we're going to educate our kids in America or the southern border, anything that you could bring up. And I can tell you the person that I want dealing with that is Donald J. Trump. It's not 
George W. Bush in his prime or Mitt Romney or certainly not Joe Biden. He's proven that, not that uh, he had to be elected for, for him to prove that to me. But the list goes on. The one person that I want dealing with those issues, the way that he dealt with them before is Donald J. Trump, and he has my full support. DeSantis, do you think when you mention foreign policy, is, is it because he doesn't have the foreign policy credentials? What is it about him? There's not a what about DeSantis that I don't like. He's my governor and I've loved his policies as governor. But President Trump has put the policies in place as the chief executive of the United States of America delivering for Americans. You want to talk about the difference in tax receipts, something that was said earlier between under Biden right now and under Donald J. Trump and what was taking place there. The way that Americans had a secure border. We were looking for things that made sense for America in an unashamed way. And that was a lightning in the bottle moment of of American history with what was taking place. And it's been destroyed in in a matter of a couple of years. And we can right the ship of America if we go back to fighting for America, which Joe Biden loves to bash. He said, "You, you you can call everybody a MAGA Republican. And that's an insult to say that somebody wants to make America great again. That's the wrong direction. Well, we have to see who the Republican nominee is actually going to be. But quickly, did you hear anything from DeSantis, DeSantis himself or his, his world when it came to your endorsement? Did they try to get your endorsement? Uh, I spoke to them, let them know that this was taking place, that it and was a they done say? deal. These are my reasons. And they said, OK, I, I look when I speak, I make it very clear that this is the position I've analyzed and this is the position I'm taking. And so it was a done deal at that point. A done deal. All right, Congressman Brian Mast, we'll see what happens in that meeting you've got coming up with Republicans to see whether or not that vote will happen today, as you predicted. Thanks for your time this morning. All the best. What a fascinating interview, and what a point on the IRS agents as well, given the tax collections. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll keep following that. This just in, really significant breaking news as well. We've learned that Chinese President Xi Jinping spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on the phone this morning. This is the first time the two leaders have talked since Russia invaded Ukraine. Zelensky said in a statement about the call, it was a long and meaningful conversation. Last month, uh, Xi Jinping visited Russian President Vladimir Putin for talks where the two leaders posed as peace brokers for Russia's own invasion of Ukraine. No one better to help us understand the significance of this than our chief international anchor, Christian Amapur, who has been on the ground in Ukraine and has covered this extensively. How big is it? Uh, Look, it's big. I mean, you know, these guys have been saying that they would talk ever since uh, Xi went to his good buddy for life, Vladimir Putin, in Moscow. However, best friends, you know, a no holds barred alliance, a troubling alliance because it seems to be a growing alliance against the United States and the West, Russia, China, Iran, etc. The thing is, what did President Xi say to President Zelensky? The two are bigging it up, obviously, because China's a massive partner, especially in the past, a massive economic partner for Ukraine. But China's view of being a peace broker up until now has meant parroting Vladimir Putin's position. So right now, unless something changed on that phone call, there is no real way for China to show that it is an honest broker and not just carrying water for President Putin. But this is a problem because some other Democratic leaders, such as President Lula, you know, left wing, you know, China obviously is, 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 is in its own autocratic camp. This is a president who also doesn't believe in the U.S. support of Ukraine and believes that there should be uh, some kind of peace 
to be broken. Obviously, everybody would like that. But the conditions, according to Ukraine, are not yet right for that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear Zelensky's take of the call, saying it was long, it was meaningful, and that that call, in addition to Ukraine's ambassador to China being appointed, mm -hmm. he believes will give a powerful impetus to the development of bilateral You know, relations. this is all diplomatese, right? The two leaders have had a call. There's a, there's a, there's a readout, as often happens. It's an important thing that the two leaders have spoken. China's a massive, massive player, as we all know. Uh, the question is, what is the quality of that conversation and what is China prepared to do to pressure his, you know, Xi's best friend, Putin, to actually come to the table and stop what is generally deemed by the United Nations as an illegal reinvasion of, of, uh, of Ukraine. So that is really the key. And the real key is whether the United States and its allies will remain really vested in this process of defense that they have put so much into until there is a position where Ukraine is militarily capable of putting pain to Russia and therefore creating the conditions for a negotiation. Right now, Russia doesn't have to negotiate. It's doing badly, but, but, No you know, one's winning. Right. Yeah. And, and that's Russia, the problem. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Russia, Alexei Navalny yep. and the updates that we have on him. What should we know? So, look, Vladimir Putin considers Alexei Navalny, as well as Ukraine, an existential threat. These people want to bring democracy and an end to the autocratic regime of Putin. And they try to speak the truth, both Ukraine in the way it acts as an independent and democratic state, and Navalny as the key opposition. So what's happening is that Putin and the regime there is just over and over again, adding more charges, more threats, more court appearances. So now he's facing two trials, and cases, one of extremism, one of terrorism, what the difference is, I'm not entirely sure. He says he's been given, or at least his family say, that he's been given 10 days to go through a massive dossier. They've spoken to yeah. um, Jim Shuto and on CNN. And, and this is what Putin does. He tries to make irrelevant his opposition, and that's what's happening. Yeah, and to see that picture we just had up, it just shows how much thinner Alexei Navalny is now. Yes. I mean, they were saying he's lost, I think, 17 pounds in two weeks, which yeah. is just, I mean, it's awful to see the, the condition he's being treated in. The other reason we wanted to have you on today, and because we, you know, we covered what happened in Afghanistan, yeah. the exit of that, obviously, uh, you were there for that as well. And now hearing this news from the White House that the mastermind of that suicide bombing that happened at the Kabul airport that killed 13 U.S. Mm -hmm. troops now has been killed by the Taliban. What do you make of that and the fact that the Pentagon is saying, you know, we weren't, we weren't involved in this? Well, that's what I gather from my sources in Afghanistan, who I called before coming here, that this happened, uh, according to the Pentagon now, we, we reached out some two and a half weeks ago, or early April, and I'm hearing that also from the sources in Afghanistan. It happened in the southern part of the country. I was told it happened by their intelligence services, so it may have been a you know, targeted hit after having found this person. My source said to me, whether or not this was the person who masterminded the Abbey Gate assassination and the bomb attack is kind of irrelevant to us. They would say that, wouldn't they, right? Because yeah. they don't want to say that they're helping the United States. But what we want to do is make sure that ISIS-K is decapitated. Mm -hmm. So this is important for us anyway, and ISIS-K is a threat to the Taliban, not just to the U.S. and the general, and the general area. So they want to do that. They were sorry, they said to me, that his news of this had broken into the public because they fear that that will be a recruitment tool mm. for ISIS-K in the region. And then, you know, I asked him how else things are doing, because clearly the woman's issue is a, an Huge. absolute abomination there. 
and they have lied, lied, lied. You know, the US pulled out, handed the place back to the Taliban. Taliban lied and women are and girls are completely and utterly, um, you know, wretched right now, unable to go to school, unable to work. Uh, it's a terrible situation. And my source who belongs to the more, if there is such a thing, pragmatic, Kabul-based, a wing of the Taliban says, this is a terrible crisis for all of us. We want and need our women to go back to school and to work. But the fundamentalists in Kandahar are not allowing that to happen. So many of us asked that question to the Biden administration, to lawmakers around that time. What will you do if all of this progress for women is reverted? And They're not doing no anything. Answers. They're not doing right. anything. And also Afghanistan, potentially, there's new worries that it could become yet again yeah. a basis for terror that gets projected beyond and maybe even further into the Allies and into the West. Before you go, mm. the all-world crises. Let's take one moment to talk about oh, this let's, man. So let's. Above the fold on the New York Times, this is and the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal as well. It was Harry your friend. Belafonte. He was. I was really incredibly lucky. We met at a Robert F. Kennedy annual Human Rights Awards, which is totally relevant, right? Because he was the lion of civil rights. He brought the Kennedys into the civil rights struggle in conversation with Martin Luther King. I sat and listened to this man's wisdom and his inspiration and his and his experience in nonviolent resistance and how whether it's you know guns today or racism and civil rights today or whether it was when he was on the front lines absolutely inspiring his life story is phenomenal he wrote a brilliant book i was able to interview him i'm playing a much fuller cut of my interview from about 10 years ago when he did and published his book it's a remarkable story he's a hero we say too often great but this is one of the last greats, a great American and a great humanitarian and a great defender of human and civil rights. And we can see it on your show. CNNI, exactly, right? and later on PBS yes. around the United States, yes. And I'm really, I'm really proud to have known him, really proud. Yeah. Lovely tribute to your friend, and we're looking forward to watching that. Yeah. Christian, thank you for joining thank us you. this morning. And on top of all those international headlines that we just discussed, also happening here today in New York, E. Jean Carroll is expected to testify in the battery and defamation trial against former President Trump. What do we expect to hear? We'll tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. She is one of the most recognizable faces on TV, on social media. Kim Kardashian has more than 400 million followers on Twitter and Instagram combined. That number dwarfed by this one, 3.2 billion. That is the value of her shapewear and clothing company, Skims. But no number is more important to her, the star, the entrepreneur, and the activist, than the number four. She's a mom to four kids. I sat down with her yesterday at the Time 100 Summit right here in New York. I was thinking a lot about sort of how you do business and observing it from the outside. Do you trust your gut? Absolutely. Over the data? Over what other people say, Kim, you should do this? We should do this? Absolutely. Um, and I like to be in business. I think there's two things. I like to do things that I will feel very confident in, that I obviously feel like I know what I'm doing, I want to learn and surround myself with people that will support you in a way where you trust them so much mm -hmm. in the area that they're gonna run the business in and you give them that control and they trust you in the area that you really know. And if you just trust each other like that, 
it absolutely can be magic. Equal respect and trust. Yes. And I do have, I think as you get a little bit older and you learn a lot along the way, I think one of the most important things, and there was a time when I didn't have this luxury of choosing who I was in business with. Yeah. But if you're at a place and you take your time, you realize that you absolutely do not want to be in business with people you don't want to spend holidays with and that you don't like. So, uh, your dad, you've said that a lot of your work ethic, because I've heard you only sleep about five and a half hours a night, if that, a lot of it now. comes now, a lot of it comes from your dad. And you lost him when you were 22. Yes. He died from cancer, just two, two month battle with cancer. Um, he was a lawyer, and your dream was to follow in his footsteps. We were talking about this backstage. My dad, too, lawyer. Died when I was young, four months in the hospital. So I, I, I understand that and wanting to make them so proud. Is his memory and what he wanted for you and what you learned from him a driving force now in your criminal justice work? Absolutely. But I know that he would probably get such a kick out of this because he wouldn't have expected it at all. Um, we talked so much about me going to law school, and he always said he would help give us an allowance if we stayed in school. And um, I couldn't couldn't do it. I was like, I'm on my own. I don't care. I'm not going to go to, I, I didn't uh, finish school. And then now that the opportunity came about all these years later, it's so much more meaningful to me. Didn't he tell you not to be a lawyer? He did. He did. He <laughs> well, he did say he's going to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> he did warn me how stressful it is and said, I know you. You're not going to want to go through this. So figure out something else to do. But I will say, I did learn my work ethic from my dad. Yeah. But I learned so much more from my mom than I ever give her credit for and oh. that I ever, I, you know. So give Chris credit, right? Yes. Now. I, I don't know. Is it a thing like you kind of give, this is like, I'm not even trying to be funny, but you kind of give the dead parent a lot of credit? I mean, it's, you know? it's so true. My, my, my mom said the same thing to me. We did this video for CNN all about my dad, and she's like, I love it, Poppy, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. I was there, too. Still here. I was there, too. <laughs> about me. Yeah. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Mom. You know, if you watch this, I feel like we've always given my dad so much credit. What's... What did she teach you? Well-deserving. But she, I mean, the one thing is she taught us how to um, have a home, how to make a home. And all of my, I mean, I'm, she's the most nostalgic, sentimental person. So she kept everything from when we were growing up. I could find a tooth. I could find locks of hair. I could find, <laughs> she has these chests that she saved for us with baby books and so I do that with all of my kids. And I write each one of my kids a letter, like a four or five page letter every year on their birthday um, that I'll give them when they're 21. Oh, and, um, you know, about what we did through the whole year and what their favorite shows are and what they like to eat and who their friends you do are. do this for every child. I definitely yeah. feel like I'm underperforming in the parenting <laughs> department. Yeah. Next it's, year. It's a lot. We'll do it. So, it's a lot. So she taught us how to be really good moms. How to make a home. I, don't, I, I love being a homemaker, and I love working, and I don't know often that we talk about both, so I'm really glad that you said that. You have said, my 40s are about being team me. Me too. 40s are the best. 
So far, so good. I've got almost exactly. a year in the books. I agree. Any advice for folks on Team Me? Just, oh my god, I have so much advice and I'm blanking. Um, I mean, I think it's just really simple. Like, I live my life just trying to be a good person, be do right by other people, you know, be kind to everyone and focus on yourself. Sometimes you need to give yourself a little bit more love. Sometimes other people need a little bit more love and there's just enough to go around. I'm a big fan. A lot fan. of time you spent with her. Yeah, I'm a book. Yeah. I mean, I think you reinvent yourself in life and to put, use that platform and that power to try to get people out of jail and help reform the justice system, good yeah. on her. And we'll see, I mean, the impact it could have with Richard Gossip. We'll see what that looks like. Yes, we will. All right, we'll have more on that. Also today, President Biden is actually going to start his first television ad in key battleground states. That came after he announced he's running for re-election officially yesterday. We're going to talk to Congressman Jim Clyburn, of course, a very close Biden ally, about some of the challenges that his new race may face. That's next. All right, a notable update out of Idaho for you this morning. The attorneys for the person you see there, the quadruple murder suspect, Brian Koberger, want one of the victim's roommates to testify in his upcoming preliminary hearing. Bethany Funk is one of the two people who survived the deadly attack that night. She moved home to Reno, Nevada after the murders happened. And now documents show that Koberger's attorneys are asking a Nevada court to compel her to travel to Idaho and testify as a witness or Koberger in June. They claim that she has information they say is exculpatory to him. Funk is resisting right now. Her attorney actually filed a motion on Friday to quash that subpoena. Koberger, as we know, has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder. If he is found guilty, he could face the death penalty. He has yet to enter a plea. Montana's Republican-dominated House is now considering disciplinary action against a Democratic state representative, Zoe Zephyr, Zephyr, who is transgender, has been silenced since last Thursday when she said her Republican colleagues would have, quote, blood on their hands, close quote, if they banned gender-affirming care for transgender minors. Here she is on AC360 last night. I see the real harm these bills, these bills bring and the deaths they could potentially lead to, and I stand by holding the Republicans accountable for their policies. On Monday, police arrested seven people for protesting the House's refusal to let her speak. Also, this just in, federal regulators are now creating a safety review panel after several close calls on runways across the country. You've seen many of these near collisions that involve commercial airliners that we all fly on, major airports. Those have left regulators and passengers with more questions than answers about whether or not they're safe in the sky and on the tarmac. The panel comes as the agency's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, who is going to be testifying on Capitol Hill this morning, is preparing to step down, raising questions, of course, about a vacuum in leadership there. Today, President Biden will begin his first television buy in key battleground states. So the race for the White House again is on. One of his closest allies in Congress, Congressman Jim Clyburn, is here next. My dad used to have an expression say, Joey, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. I said, Joey, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. As he always say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. 
You think they like that phrase? <laughs> you heard there are a number of people and President Biden quipping about who not to measure him against. But will just not being Trump be enough for a second term? Joining me now is the man who, you might say, was the biggest help propelling Biden in winning the 2020 nomination and ultimately the White House, Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. He is assistant Democratic leader and also a 2024 Biden campaign co-chair. I know you don't like to take the credit, but a lot of folks give you a whole lot of credit. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, I do believe uh, that this country uh, is worth every bit of the effort uh, all of its people uh, put into it. And we try to do the things that are necessary to keep our pursuit of a more perfect union on track. And that's all we were trying to do back in uh, 2020. The country had gotten off track. We were visited by a pandemic, which was the worst health care crisis we had had in 100 years. And we needed leadership. And we were not getting it. People were dying. Children home from school. People couldn't get to work. We wanted leadership. Uh, the previous administration was not providing it. And I saw in Joe Biden what over 7 million more Americans uh, saw in him uh, than saw the incontinuance of the other regime. And here we are today. Uh, our country is back on yeah. track. Our children are back in school. People are working. The economy is humming along. Infrastructure is being built. Broadband is being delivered. We have rescued this economy. Uh, our veterans are now back being taken care of. Joe Biden has put us to where we need to be, and I think okay. we need to keep it going. Well, uh, a lot there. One driver, obviously, of getting kids back in school is the COVID vaccine that came during the Trump presidency. But I hear you. But one good thing, Congressman, about getting a second shot at something is you can improve on things. So I'm interested in what you think if President Biden were to win a second term, he could improve on in the second term. Well, I think we need to build upon the foundation that we've laid. It's one thing to rescue the economy. It's something else to keep it humming along. So we've had this rescue plan. That's not uh, to uh, be concluded. That is to begin. We now have this bipartisan infrastructure bill that is beginning to build out. You know, we need many more road constructions uh, than we'll get it, than we currently can afford. We need much, uh, many more bridges uh, to be built that have been falling down all over America. Uh, our children still need a diversity in their educational pursuits. We, we have a lot left to be so, done. So I keep telling people, this is not just about anti-Trump. This is about a vision for what America's future can be. It was certainly notable that his campaign announcement started with video of the insurrection. But I was struck by this. Governor uh, Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, who may run uh, for president in 2024 in the Republican Party, um, was asked yesterday here in New York about Biden's age. Listen to what he said. President Biden, it, it, he moves slow. He, he does not take questions. He rambles. He bumbles. So, yeah, I don't think we're putting our best foot forward. I don't think we're seeing the best Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden has had much better days. Has Biden had better days? We all uh, have had better days. And we all have had worse days. And age uh, does not have much to do with that. The fact of the matter is, 
Joe Biden has demonstrated time and time again that he has the vision that we need going forward. If I might use a sports metaphor, I tell my friends all the time, uh, I'm two years older than Joe Biden. I do not hit the golf ball as far as I used to hit it, but I score much better these days than I used to because I take my time, mm. I play within myself, and I, I make the putts. And that's what Joe Biden has been doing, taking his time, doing the things that are necessary to get this country moving again. And the country is moving. What do you want? An older man with wisdom or a young man with nothing but style? Who's the young man with nothing but style? Well, a younger man who's nothing but style, only three years younger. Trump. All is right. one of them. Young, relative term. I appreciate your time, Congressman Clyburn. Thanks. Thank you very much. Definitely relative. <laughs> also this morning. All right, it's time for our morning moment. There is, look at this bravery that was captured on camera. There's a little kid off of uh, track three. Um, I don't know if he fell off the wall or something, but he's... Emergency, emergency, emergency. Metro 737, Hudson C. Major kill rail. We got a toddler here on the track, so... You hear the concern there. Now you see him running. That was a three-year-old rescued after he'd got onto the train tracks at a stop outside of New York City. This happened just a few weeks ago. Luckily, the conductor spotted the child. An assistant conductor jumped down to the tracks, as you can see him here, running to get to him. Wow. He's on the third rail. Detroit 737C, this toddler's right on the third rail. A toddler, a conductor, as you can see here, he grabbed the child who at one point was on top of that third rail that's electrified. The conductor came and carried him safely to the side. The toddler was then brought on board the Metro North train. The boy, who we are now told is autistic, was reunited with his family who was deeply worried about him. Metropolitan Transportation Authority's officials are referring to it as a daring rescue, and they have awarded those employees who had some very quick responses here. So lucky for them. So lucky. What a total hero. Yeah, video is just amazing. All right, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Busy day here on CNN. CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.